to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host, Mono, here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. We're heading to Akihabara this episode to check out Hunter's Bar, the official Monster Hunter bar slash restaurant. Jan from Gamer Travels Japan joins me to chat about the menu, the atmosphere, the huge swords, and what makes a good themed restaurant. Plus, two mini features about the Pokemon Mosaic launch event and the Tamagotchi Study Club pop-up shop. In the game section, I dig into my backlog to check out the surprisingly awesome Japanese indie game Never Awake. And a bit of news, including some surprising Switch 2 rumors. Let's head on over to Hunter's Bar with Jan from Gamer Travels Japan. Tokyo Game Life, only on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Tokyo has no shortage of themed video game cafes, Pokemon, Kirby. But there's also another gaming franchise that's made its mark on the Japanese gaming and bar scene. Yes, I'm talking about Monster Hunter and its official eatery, Hunter's Bar in Akihabara. Sadly, I haven't made my way over there yet, but I know someone who has. Joining me to chat all about it is a special guest. So guest, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jan from Gamer Travels Japan. So I'm a a service basically to buy gaming merchandise for Filipinos. So I go to Japan and then I promote stuff in the Pokemon store or the Capcom store and the Nintendo store and I buy it there. And the whole goal of Gamer Travels Japan is really just to fund my travels. (laughs) So that's really the goal. Mm. And to fund, you know, things like today, the Monster Hunter bar, is a tourist trap. Let's make it clear. <laughs> there are a lot of these like, tourist trap gaming bars, gaming cafes, and they can be pricey. And in this case, whenever I, this is my fifth time in Japan, and I, I try to visit one gaming cafe or gaming bar because you know how pricey it can be. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for joining me. I like to think I'm pretty on top of gaming activities to do in Tokyo, but you were the one who told me about this place. How did you first discover Hunter's Bar? Well, I was planning to, basically, the goal of every trip is you should at least feature one bar in the cafe. And my initial my initial target was actually Artnia. Have you heard of that? The Square Enix? Oh, yes. I've done an episode about it before, actually. Yeah. And I went there last May, and it was really far. <laughs> I really wanted to feature it, but there was no interest from my feed about Square Enix stuff or even people asking me to buy Square Enix stuff. You know, there's nothing there around the Square Enix office. And as a gamer who plays Monster Hunter, it's actually ending. It ended, actually, Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak. So Mm. the last quest was a month ago. So that's a week before I went to Japan last (laughs) July. And it's, oh, it's bittersweet. If there's a bar, I bet there's a bar <laughs> or a cafe, <laughs> right? Mm. <laughs> to celebrate the end of this game that has had me for two years straight, mm. which is amazing. You know, Capcom has, right, they, they give weekly quests every every week, almost every week. So it's a good idea to go to the bar. And I did look it up. It actually started also, I remember a week before that, I saw that there was a Monster Hunter Hotel. Is that right? Oh, really? Yeah, there's also a Monster Hunter Hotel. But as you know, there's just too much stuff in Japan, all these collaborations. And there's so little time and energy to visit all of them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you a big Monster Hunter fan? What's your history with the series? So I started, yes, two years ago. And it's one of those games where you try to get, 
is a get good, right? Yeah. <laughs> and when Magnum Allo came with a demo, I died a hundred times. But there was something there. Oh, I really want to get into this game. It's really diff- difficult. And then I, I tried the switch axe and it clicked. Something about the crunch when you hit the monster really is addicting. I, I finally mastered the mechanics until I just started playing again and again. And I think what's fun about Monster Hunter is that it's a spectacle, even though you're dying. Magnamalo or Malzeno, when they do all their superpowers and everything goes crazy. I think I die sometimes because I'm just watching what's happening. I forget that I'm still playing a game. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's my thing. And with Monster Hunter, is you need to give them really Capcom. They really work hard in their games. Mm, right. I wish they had more flowers people supported. Right. The stuff that they did. A bit of history on Hunter's Bar. The bar originally opened up in Shinjuku in 2018, but was later moved to Akihabara. Do you think these types of places need to be in Akihabara to be successful? Or would there be more value in setting up in another place? Ah, uh, yes, exactly. I think it needs to be in Akihabara, especially... It's really strange that I thought there would be more of a fan base with Monster Hunter trying to sell Capcom goods. There was mm. also le- less fanfare about that from my customers. It was still Pokemon, Nintendo stuff. And so I could see that there's not enough power... I said, with Arknea, it's just so far from everything. <laughs> I mean, once you go to the bar, what else is there to do, right? It's mm. not. But if just you're look at, at the building. <laughs> yeah, look at the building and you go home. At least if you're Akihabara, you have a lot of stuff to do after the bar. And then you can go to, I think in the same, there's a Final Fantasy bar, there's a Dragon Quest bar in yeah. the same building. So I th- and you can see how much the fan bases are different Again, compared to Pokemon, because Pokemon's uh, reservation is a month before. Yeah. You need to have your fingers hot on the keyboard. Mm. And you need to actually, if you don't, you know, if you don't reserve on that day, then a month, exactly a month before, you're never going to go to the Pokemon. Exactly. <laughs> and for Hunter Bar, I didn't, I thought that it was going to be the same situation. And it was very easy. <laughs> And when I went there, it's oh oh, it's you can choose whatever seat you want. Basically, I mean, it was it wasn't packed at all because I think it goes down to, as you said, you didn't know about the bar. It goes down to poor marketing. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about their marketing that's not working, or you know, the I even posted this on Reddit, and a lot of people didn't know about the bar as well. And there's no merchandise except for a cookbook. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of the, the day I went there, I remembered I had a Monster Hunter t-shirt from Uniqlo, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I left it in the hotel. Oh, I bet, like in my head, oh, I bet there's going to be a t-shirt there. And there wasn't. Compared to Artnia or even the Square Enix Cafe, they have a whole shop attached to the cafe. So I assumed it would be the same for the Hunter's Bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, they just have a cookbook. Hunter's Bar is a bar with alcohol, which is pretty different from other themed restaurants, which are mostly styled after cafes. Do you think making it a bar instead of a cafe is a good direction? I think so, yeah, because it's Monster Hunter is a difficult game, so I don't see little kids playing it. or mm. And it's a very bloody game as well, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not as cute as Pokemon. I guess the target is a bit of geared to adults as well. and But that's why I was happy. There's like beer there, right? 
By the way, do you play Monster Hunter as well? I have played several Monster Hunter games. I tried to get into it with three, and it didn't click. I tried also four, it didn't click. And then finally, World. I quite like that one. I, I quote-unquote completed it, but that just means I beat the story. But actually, my favorite Monster Hunter game is probably Monster Hunter Stories 2 for the Switch, oh, where it's a JRPG where you control the monsters like they're Pokemon. And since I'm a big Pokemon fan, that really clicked with me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the animation and everything. And I did try the demo of that. And again, I wasn't, they do really work hard, right? Like that, like yeah. the Pokemon, the cutscenes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I wish people appreciated Monster Hunter, or what Capcom does. Um, yeah, because they do really try hard with their cutscenes and animation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, let's step into Haunter's Bar. When you first entered, what was the first thing that caught your eye? I think the big cat, it's there beside the seat. And the fact that it there's a little place for memorabilia in the cashier. And when you get there, actually, it's I th- there's a lot. It's bas- I think it's from the pandemic, but a lot of it is wi- uh, QR codes. If the menu is uh, digital already, mm. so you want to order, then you need to uh, use your phone to order. Which is very interesting. You don't call the waiter; you just use your phone as well. Yeah, yeah. And of course, all the weapons. I think that was the big thing, and how big mm. it was. If you see the photos, there's a theater. How how there's a big screen. I think there are two or th- maybe even three big screens just playing Monster Hunter games. And I think that's really to get you into the experience. Again, they really work hard. That's why I wish people marketed this better. <laughs> You know, to make this an experience. Yeah. What are some of the other big decorations or pieces of memorabilia the cafe has? Uh, I think one of the big things I was seeing, oh, there's an area where I think you can do a scrapbook and then you can write your messages. You can hmm. draw your, your dogs over there. And one of the features also is there's an area where you can play Monster Hunter Rise at least on one side mm. of games. And then they have a PlayStation and then they also have a dock. So you bring your Switch and you can actually put your Switch there and then play with it. Monster Hunter Rise over there. Can okay. you bring your own Switch to play or is it a reloaded character? Yes, you can bring your own Switch to play. And then they give you a extra controller so you don't need to use your Joy-Cons. Does Hunter Bar have any signatures or exclusive artwork displayed in the bar? I think, I think yeah. There's like a side of of older games. I'm a newbie. <laughs> I mean, this mm. is like the first time I played the franchise, so I'm not familiar with other creatures there. But you could see in the deeper into the bar, there, there's a showcase of, I guess, older magazines and also pro- toys, obviously figures. My favorite is Zinogar, over there as well. I think the big appeal for a lot of these themed restaurants is, of course, the atmosphere. How would you say Hunter's Bar fares on that front? Does it feel like it captures the atmosphere and feeling of the game? I think so, yeah, because the bar, the the bar area reminds me of the, it's basically a wooden bar, right? Oh, this is a Monster Hunter Rise bar. I mean, compared to, you could say, the I've been to the Pokemon Cafe, you know, it's, there's still, you just have Pikachu, that's it, yeah. But this one, the fact that they try to really get you into the spirit. I think there's just too much to look at, uh-huh. actually. They're trying to reminisce about it. 
oh, what's that? And what's there? And what's this? And oh, yeah, the armor as well. So you could see a Rathian armor, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Yeah. So, But it's a, it's a good place to take a lot of pictures. Every corner has something that, yeah, that will catch your eye. Well, we've been talking about how the bar looks and feels, but we got to get into the food. What did you order on your most recent visit? I ordered, of course, the bunny dango. Uh, mm. Oh, yes. Yes, because I mean, I mean, it's is easily <laughs> what you need. And I got the roast beef that you have, you know, in Monster Hunter, which is really delicious as well. And of course, the beer. And I think I had another of probably Mazano's drink. And they're pretty decent, especially the dango and the beer. It's not trying to be too cutesy, right? It's just, it's direct to the point. As a warning for, I guess, people uh, who go to cafe, these bars, is the portions aren't really uh, really big. Right? Mm, right. But for the price, I think it's more affordable, probably. I'm trying to remember what places I've been to. The Pokemon Cafe and also I went to the Super Nintendo World in USJ as well. So I think compared to the price, this is more affordable. I guess because I like drinking alcohol. I think it's worth its price more than a coffee, right? I'm looking at the menu now. They've got a Yan Cut Koo egg pizza, which is shaped like that monster's head. We oh. also have the well-cooked meat, which I think you talked about, yeah. where it looks like the meat from the game with the bone sticking out. Yeah. And there's a Kulu Yaku egg dish that kind of looks scrambled eggs. And for dessert, we've got Kirin's Lightning Strike Parfait, which looks what I suppose an ice cream approximation of Kirin is supposed to be. And there's a limited menu modeled after Sunbreak with some Genovese pasta. So do you think as a whole, is there enough here for anybody who would want to come in? Or do you think some people would be like, oh, there's nothing I want to order? I think there's enough. It's a tourist trap, you know. But I think if you go to these cafes or bars, I mean, you don't need to order a meal. I mean, I think the desserts are good enough. Order a drink, right? If you're right. trying to save your money, your budget, right? It's not a problem. Especially if there are two people. For me, I, I'm as much as I'm on Instagram, we're both on Instagram, right? Taking pictures. Yeah. I'm just there for the experience as well. <laughs> but there are, of course, there, there are gamers who just want to take pictures. And as you can see there, it's very aesthetically pleasing, at least for the drinks as well. Looking at the drinks, one that stands out to me is the Devil Joe drink. Sadly, it's not made out of pickles, but it does have these huge two slices of pineapple on the side of it. And there's also some sake served out of a traditional sake cup. Did you have any of these drinks while you were there? Uh, no, I just had the beer and beer master sushi because of the mug. The mug was a silver mug, as you can see. But I think this is the sake is kind of new. I didn't see this when I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bar also has a guild card where you can get prizes based on repeat visits. Did you pick up a guild card while you were over there? Yeah. So for the guild card, every 1,000 yen gives you a point. I think I spent 3,000 yen. So that was three or, or almost four, three points. And what happens is they give you a little gacha game if you you can choose a coaster. And I know I had four points, so I got I spent four thousand yen. And I know there's you can get a prize for one one point or for five points you can get a prize 
and then for seven points you can get a, a prize. So I, I missed it by one point, but it's okay. <laughs> I, I had four coasters at each one point, and surprisingly, okay. I got a coaster of Primordial Malzeno and Malzeno. Also, when you play on your Switch, right, mm-hmm. you get. I think there is. I didn't understand it completely, but you can get. I think more points. You fight Scorn Magdamalo, and if you're able to defeat it within 15 minutes, I think you get a special guild card. And then, uh, you're, but I got I finished it in 19 minutes, <laughs> and which is interesting because I'm playing with multiplayer, so it's it's a really fun experience using multiplayer. And then the the players I know don't know that I'm in this bar, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, but you but you can use these points for the next visit, unfortunately. So that's why I didn't really pay attention to what they were saying. <laughs> but whatever you get from these points will be used next time. Okay, but I'm not going to be there, you know, next time. So it's fine. It's fine. When it comes to these themed restaurants or bars, what do you think is the most important aspect? What separates a good one from a bad one? I think one is... Maybe the deep cuts, <laughs> you know, I think in terms of merchandise or food, it's not just to put the face of the character on it. <laughs> it needs to be more imaginative. And mm. that's why I got the well done steak, right? To make you feel like you're actually in the game because they could easily just put the Monster Hunter logo, <laughs> you know, on the cake and that's it and call it a day. Yeah. But making an effort to actually find a way to tie in stuff that you see in the game and then turn it into an actual menu is, I think, what's really special. And of course, the ambiance as well as what kind of memorabilia you'll see there. Yeah, I think Kirby is the only character you can kind of get away with just putting the face on something and it <laughs> then it becomes automatically better. But yeah. other characters, you can't really do that. But anyway, it's a Kirby cafe, right? In the Sky yes. Tree. The Sky Tree. That's also been, I've also done an episode about that as well. I noticed how much bigger it is now. I didn't. Oh, yes. It's oh. a big deal. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that's another one that's, oh, that's, people really love Kirby here. Oh, I just want to share with my customers. One of my customers was really nice. She, she wanted some Kirby gachapons. And I got it for her. And then she said, oh, one of them is for you. So, oh, <laughs> yeah, now I have a Kirby with a lifesaver. <laughs> awesome. I could, yeah, I could put in the tub. <laughs> Do you have any tips for first-time visitors to the Hunter's Bar? Do you need to make a reservation a week ahead of time, or could you just do it the same day? I think a tip is maybe probably just to reserve ahead of time. Uh, I said it wasn't too busy, but you never know with these bars, especially we're promoting it right now. We might make a trend. <laughs> you might actually... Uh, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, but it's a pretty big bar, I think. I don't know how many seats, but it should have... It had at least at least 20, 30 seats. It's a big area for a bar. I think it's best to reserve. And also, if you should reserve, at least you know how much you're going to spend. So I think that's a tip as well. We were looking at the menu a while ago. Look at the menu ahead of time so you don't get surprised. I think it's very easy when you go to these gaming cafes or bars, you kind of get lost in the spectacle. Mm. Oh, I want that and I want this, right? And maybe it's better to plan it out, especially places like the Pokemon Cafe as well, because they're limited stuff. 
there. So I think the same here is maybe it's better to reserve because you might lose out on any special stuff that they have. Final verdict, would you recommend Hunter's Bar to Monster Hunter fans? Also, do you think non-fans would find it interesting? Well, I think for fans, definitely yes. I think that's <laughs> that's a definitely yes. And I just remembered, because you were asking about what makes a good and a bad bar, I think what makes Monster Hunter Bar memorable compared to the others is that they had the coasters, that little thing to, to get free trinklets. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very important to always have some extra thing. I think I got a cat patch as well, aside from the cards. So that, I think, it's the element of surprise that, you know, in living in Japan, there's always something around. They're always surprising people, right, with little things. Uh, I think that's what makes a good bar. It's also the ability to surprise you and mm. give you little souvenirs that, I mean, make you really smile, I think. And then the coasters, I think, was good enough. For me, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But for non-fans, I think maybe if you like beer, <laughs> there's beer there. But maybe the attention to looking at all the weapons there, it looks a real museum, right? Mm. Because they really look real weapons. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think you'd be fascinated with that. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking me and the listeners to Hunter's Bar. So, Jan, where can people find you? I'm at Gamer Travels Japan. So at the moment, we're, I probably will go back to Japan again in December. So, but at the moment, you know, I'll be going back to gaming like the Zelda. <laughs> so my content will be going back to like, I have to play as Oracle of Ages. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that, and then probably do some content of the stuff I did last June because it's been pretty busy. So I'm, yeah, at Gamer Travels Japan on Instagram. And what I hope is to see what Nintendo has for Super Mario Wonder. Yes. Nintendo's. I think that's what I'm most looking forward to. Great. And the links to everything will be in the podcast description. So listeners, check it out. Jan from Gamer Travels Japan. Once again, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And hope to see you in person one day. <laughs> yes. I'll bump into you when I go to Japan again. <laughs> okay. Take care. Let's take a brief ad break. And we're back with another great episode of... Hold your horses, mister. This is a commercial for our show, Nasty Lamps. Uh, not the actual show. You mean to tell me this is a commercial for our bi-weekly show from Game Studio Chuhai Labs, where we talk about games, game dev, Japan, and whatever else comes up? Yep, and it stars me, Kinsey Burke. And also it has my uh, junior co-host, Mark Lentz. Sup, though? <laughs> so catch brand new episodes twice monthly for only three easy payments of four twenty sixty nine. That doesn't make sense. Nasty Labs, only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Okay, some brief mini features on the recent pop-up shops here in Tokyo. It really feels like video game pop-up shop season here. There is a Splatoon one next week that I'm absolutely checking out, but here's a lowdown on some recent ones. The first is Pokemon Mosaic in Akasaka. This event was located in Sogetsu Hall, which is half theater, half art gallery. Not exactly a place you'd think you'd find Pokemon merch, but it's really amazing. The inside didn't look that dissimilar from a shrine in Tears of the Kingdom. But anyways, the event was half pop-up shop, half launch event. Pokemon Mosaic is a new merch line from design firm Nendo, where they take the Gen 1 Pokemon and turn them into abstract mosaic patterns. So no, they don't look like they just blurred out the Pokemon. They look kind of like sliding puzzles a bit. It's a very artsy, adult-oriented merch line. A lot of the goods are things like cups, plates, cushions, tote bags, 
So nothing like plushies or t-shirts. Entering, the first thing I noticed was a huge Pokemon mosaic sign with a Charizard statue. The statue had the mosaic pattern, so it's a very artistic rendering of everyone's favorite faux dragon. There's also a Pikachu statue with the same idea in the merch area. The main part is a big room, where in the back is a smaller sort of mock living room of the Pokemon Mosaic merch. You've got a dresser, some cushions, a table, a sofa, all adorned with the Pokemon Mosaic patterns. The back also had a lot of the mosaic displays on the wall. The room was also filled with a lot of tables where you could sit down and color the mosaics on some coloring sheets, so that was at least a fun activity for kids. At the other end of the floor is the merch area. It's all laid out and you need to quote-unquote order it by writing the number on a sheet and then handing it to the clerk. The layout of the merch was really nice. It almost looks like a display piece in itself. I grabbed the Bulbasaur Evolution mug, which has the Bulbasaur, Ivysaur, and Venusaur mosaics printed on it. I didn't notice until I bought it, but the cup is slightly smaller than a typical mug. I compared it to my Kirby mug, and yeah, Kirby is bigger. My ticket did come with a pin badge and some stickers, so at least that's a souvenir. The pop-up shop is now closed, but you can buy the merch online. It's at least worth looking up because I've never seen any merch quite like this. The second pop-up shop, which again is now closed, was the Tamagotchi Study Club in Shibuya's Miyashita Park, which is a very trendy shopping area. You can even go onto the roof and it's covered in grass, so it's very eco-friendly, very modern looking. The clothing brand Mekri had a Tamagotchi-themed pop-up shop at their store selling exclusive merch. The gimmick is that it's geared towards college students and focuses on very simple fashion. So you've got white cotton sweaters, shirts, hats. I don't want to say bland, but it's black and white. They do have some sillier stuff like keychains and pin badges, but they were a bit expensive. A 1500 yen keychain? I only have one key and my bag can only hold so many. But the reason to go was to see the displays and to meet the real-life Tamagotchi. Mamechi and Kuchipachi were said to appear, but when I visited, I only saw the Kuchipachi mascot. But I did take pictures of and with it, so I have evidence that I know a real-life Tamagotchi. The inside of the store does have statues of Mamechi and Kuchipachi wearing the hats, which is another great photo op. I've got a lot of pictures from both events on social media, and I've recently started a video series on YouTube called Tokyo Game Gallery, where I share more of my pictures. Think of it as a companion piece to the podcast. Episode one is out now, so check it out on YouTube. That's it for the features. Now for the games. Zelda, done. Pikmin, done. That was pretty much my entire summer games palette. But the next big game I'm looking forward to is Super Mario Bros. Wonder, so I finally have some time to dig into my backlog. And a game I recently cleared was Japanese indie dev Neotro's twin-stick shooter Never Awake. Neotro, from Yokohama by the way, is maybe best known for their other shooter franchise, Vitra. The game was actually my reward for submitting a documentary for a MinMax's Doc Lightning mini-documentary event, so I did get it for free which I now kind of feel bad about because the game really surpassed my expectations and is absolutely worth tossing the devs some cash. I'm not much of a twin-stick shooter or classic shmup kind of guy. There are some I like. Not too long ago, I chatted about another twin-stick shooter, Monkey Barrels, which I thought was pretty clever and accessible. My main issue is that, hey, these games are pretty tough and require a lot of mastery of pattern recognition. So it's a genre I typically stay away from. But Never Awake makes a lot of really interesting design decisions I haven't seen in the genre before and gives players many accessible options so even a total newbie of the genre could beat the game or at least make quite a lot of progress. 
What's going to grab you most is the art. The character is a 3D model, but the backgrounds and enemies are lavishly painted 2D graphics. You're likely to jump to Tim Burton when it comes to describing the design aesthetic. Does this type of look have a word? Pop gothic? Cutesy horror? Part colorful cartoon, part horrific abomination, not too far from something like Little Nightmares. Even if it isn't your vibe, you can't help but be impressed by the creativity of the art and the enemy designs. Edamame snakes, inflatable surgical gloves, tardigrades, evil schoolgirls, giant grandma hands, monsters that look like they fell out of Kingdom Hearts. Until the very end, you're fighting wave after wave of wild and memorable enemies. Some could be plushies. Creepy plushies, but people are into that. Again, it's really hard to oversell how great this game looks. Even if you have zero plans to play the game, definitely look up the trailer to see what it's all about. It's a motivating factor when it comes to pushing the player along. You'll want to keep going to see what incredible setting the game puts you in next. They're all very different and they balance the unusual with the mundane. The first world is Vegetable Forest, which is pretty self-explanatory. Then you visit a dog park, then a hospital. I don't know how many games transition from dog park to hospital, but Never Awake pulls it off. Now the game looks great, but how does it play? It's a very simple, streamlined twin-stick shooter. You don't need to worry about your weapon, reloading, or anything like that. You have one main weapon that shoots out a bunch of bullets in a straight line. Compared to something like Monkey Barrels or Into the Gungeon, this might turn off people who want more gameplay variety, but if you just want a pure shooter where you solely need to rely on your skill instead of your build, this is it. I admire the simplicity. You see an enemy, you blast it with your weapon. You do have some special attacks that you can swap out, but honestly, the default one they give you is pretty versatile. The goal of each stage is to gather orbs to fill up a bar. When you get it to 100%, you auto-finish the level. There's no traditional end of a stage. When it does reach the end, it loops, introducing harder enemies. So yes, it is kind of like Yoshi's story in the sense that you only beat a level after collecting a certain amount of items. I'm sure the devs played Yoshi's Story endlessly. Both games do have great art. You can unlock gear for your character, and most of the equipment you unlock is essentially there to make the game easier. You've got your standard health upgrades, some that give you some money, others that make you invincible longer after dashing. These are completely optional, but they are there to help out players who might be having a tough time. I can see some people saying it makes the game too easy, but even though I maxed out my character's equipment, the game was still quite challenging. And if you want to make the game super hard, you don't need to equip anything and can go in completely bare bones. I love how you can shape the game towards your playstyle and your appetite towards difficulty. There are definitely some crutch items, like the umbrella that absorbs attacks. Plus, later on, you can unlock the ability to shoot both in front and behind you, which basically doubles your damage output. But these additions are, most importantly, fun to use. Again, I have it in my head that these types of games are absurdly hard, and that the fans of the genre want unforgiving gameplay, but maybe I'm coming at it from the wrong angle. The game has dozens of stages before you roll credits, and I was constantly impressed by both the diversity and the quality all the way up to the end. There are some gimmick stages, like some where a giant crystal floats through the level that can block attacks, but you can only gain souls to beat the stage by shooting the crystal. Another great one has you inside a mouth, and you need to find the gaps in the teeth to avoid damage. There's one where you ride up elevators, another where you dodge giant fingers. Yeah, I think you figured out by now that the game is bursting with creativity. Stages often switch between side-scrolling and top-down. One stage will make you go right, another left, another up, another down. I never felt like I was doing the same thing over and over again, and the devs brilliantly paced out the levels to keep it interesting. There's quite a lot of boss fights too, who each have their own stage. 
So you don't need to worry about going through an entire stage only to repeat it because you lost to the boss. But repeating stages is no big deal. They take maybe two or three minutes with maybe five minutes being on the longer end. If you do lose, there is an option called Oversoul where you trade in some souls to make you more powerful temporarily. Sometimes the game will give you a free Oversoul for particularly tricky stages. These don't cost a whole lot, so don't feel like you're going to go bankrupt if you use it a few times. Again, this ties in with the game being as hard or easy as you want it to be. I haven't touched on the story yet, but it is actually fairly interesting. There are some brief cutscenes, but a lot of the background info is explained through diary entries that pop up between levels. There are two endings, a good one and a bad one. Ironically, you will default to the good ending the first time around, and you unlock the bad ending if you play the remix stages after the credits roll. This is kind of a strange format, but I can see some people being bummed if they roll credits only to find out that they got the bad ending and they need to play more to get the good one. Boxboy, a game I love, did this and it was kind of frustrating. Also, I hope I'm the only person to bring up Yoshi's Story and Boxboy in a Never Awake discussion. Never Awake really impressed me on every level. Awesome art, engaging levels, easy to pick up gameplay. It took about five or six hours to roll credits, so that's not a bad length for a $20 game. But you do your gameplay to hour calculation to see if the game is worth it. But I really loved it. Again, Nintendo brain here, but it does sort of remind me of Star Fox. That game is also very straightforward where you don't need to worry about your weapons and you just shoot things. Plus, that game also has a lot of unique stages that are very different from each other. The game is totally different from Star Fox, but it does share the idea of simple yet exciting action. Okay, that's all for games. Now for the news. Well, the news section is going to be a bit longer than usual because we have some Switch 2 rumors. Now, I normally ignore this type of stuff because we've had Switch 2 rumors for the past three years, but now it seems like there is fire to the smoke. The big one is that Switch 2 was shown off at Gamescom to developers behind closed doors. Now, by shown off, I don't mean they were holding the console, but instead they were showing videos of games running on Switch 2. This includes Breath of the Wild with a higher resolution and frame rate, plus the Unreal Engine 5 Matrix demo running on the hardware. Now, how could Switch 2 show off PS5-level tech? Apparently, Switch may be able to utilize NVIDIA's DLSS technology, which uses AI to upscale visuals despite weaker hardware. This means it could take a game that's 720p and 30fps up to 1080p and 60fps. How? Honestly, I'm not a tech junkie, so I don't really have an answer, but uh, AI does it magically, I guess? But people vouch for it, so I believe them. The hardware gap has always been an issue going on for 20 years now with Nintendo. Clearly, there are advantages to not having hardware parity. But if Nintendo is able to close the gap between the other hardware makers, this might be the X factor they need to keep the Switch momentum rolling and for Switch 2 to match the Switch's success. Maybe I'm being paranoid or unimaginative, but how could Switch 2 possibly match the Switch in terms of hardware and software sales? Anytime Nintendo has released an iterative console, it has sold less compared to the one that introduced a new concept. 2D gaming, NES outsold SNES. 3D gaming, N64 outsold GameCube. Motion controls, Wii outsold Wii U. Same for handhelds too. Dual screen, DS outsold 3DS. But Nintendo is kind of reimagining themselves as not just a video game company, but as an entertainment company, as Doug Bowser recently said. They have more revenue streams, so if Switch 2 sells 20 million less, then Switch 1, is that really a disaster? They could still be as profitable, if not more. I felt that if Switch 2 could match PS4 Pro in terms of power, 
that would already be a huge boon since the PS5 exclusive games are quite slim. But getting even closer to PS5 in terms of power through DLSS upscaling? If Switch 2 can get closer than not, then there's very little reason for developers of AAA games to ignore the hardware. But no, I don't think we will see GTA 6 on Switch 2 anytime soon. We had a Super Mario Bros. Wonder Direct not too long ago. Not going to summarize it, you've all seen it, but it did a great job in conveying how Wonder is different from the new series. A few episodes ago, I gave out five predictions for Super Mario Bros. Wonder, so time to check if I got any of them right. Number one was playable Pauline. The verdict is still out. I do think there will be at least one unlockable character, though. Two was that every level will have a wonder mechanic, so I got that one right. Three, use purple coins to unlock things in shops. Right again. Four, there will be another animal power-up outside of the elephant. Seems like I got that one wrong. I did assume the elephant would be only for Mario, and other characters would have different animals. But in the direct, they clearly explain that the core characters all play the same, so there's a lot of uniformity there. Nothing like Toadette's Peach Crown. And my last prediction was no Koopalings. Again, too early to tell, but they didn't show up. At worst, I went 3 for 5, which isn't bad. The Wonder Mechanic seems to be the highlight of the game, with each level having something completely different and unique in that stage. There's been a few interviews with Takashi Tezuka and director Shiro Mori. Mori is a Nintendo veteran, but his only director credit is the deluxe version of New Super Mario Bros. U, so this is his first completely new project as a director. Anyways, in the interview, Tezuka noted that it was important that the wonder portions take place in the stage and don't warp you to a new area, which is an interesting design philosophy. Kirby's Return to Dreamland had something similar to the wonder mechanic, where you get a power-up and then you're taken to a sub-level with unique challenges. Those feel very cut off from the flow of the level, you literally stop and go into a portal, then you're plopped out somewhere later in the level. But Wonder instead is going to take what you know and challenge you in a completely new way when the Wonder section begins. It completely falls in line with the design philosophy of introducing a new concept, building upon it, introducing a twist, then putting it all together, which is very common in Mario. But did they sort of rip off Kirby's Return to Dreamland? Yes, of course they did. Just like Odyssey ripped off Kirby's copy powers. And speaking of powers... Mario now has bubble and drill power-ups. You know who also has bubble and drill power-ups? Kirby. Is Hal okay with this? Is Kirby secretly a testing ground for EPD Mario titles? A really unexpected new feature is the badges. As a diehard Paper Mario fan, I flipped out when I saw this, and they do function somewhat similarly. You can equip one and you're given a new ability. Some include a grappling hook, high crouch jump, climbing wall jumps, and more. I have to assume that levels can be beaten without them, so they seem like they're there to aid players or encourage hardcores to replay levels or fine-tune speedruns. I do wonder if there will be unlockables or secrets that can only be obtained through badge abilities. We've seen in past Mario games where a secret requires a power-up, sometimes one that's not found in the level, so I would like to see some collectibles only accessible via certain badges to encourage players to mix it up. One of these strange newest additions is the online mode. You can play multiplayer co-op, although you sort of can. There will be other players who play the same level as you at the same time, but they're portrayed as these transparent ghostly figures in the background that you can't interact with. Yet, if you die, you can get revived by another player and put down a signpost. This is very Souls-like, and yes, Wonder is now a Strand game. It's completely optional, but I definitely want to try it out. Mario of late has been integrating these unique passive multiplayer features. 3D World and Mario Maker had messages you could leave for players, and it was always funny when you died in Mario Maker to see a billion X's pop up. 
If you want to play with your friends, you can make a lobby and play the same courses together, but you can't interact. Though there are some race levels where you are directly competing against your friends. So it's basically as if you are playing with your friends, but everyone is just transparent and they can't interact in your world. So they won't be able to pick up a power-up on your stage, for example. It seems to be a very purposeful design decision. Mario Maker has online multiplayer where you can interact with each other, but yeah, it had some infamously bad lag. But when it worked well, it was incredibly fun. Is this new online mode just a workaround for some tech issues, or does Nintendo think of it as the superior co-op option? We'll see once the game comes out. It was playable at Nintendo Live in America, and it got a lot of positive reception, so I can't wait to play it. And speaking of that, Nintendo Live is returning to Tokyo. The next event will be held on January 20th and 21st at Tokyo Big Site. Last year's event was in September, and this year's September event was in the States, so it's weird that Japan is getting another one that's just slightly delayed. But it has your typical events like game tournaments and demo stations. No new game announcements, of course. I suppose the biggest thing is a live Zelda music concert and another Deep Cut concert. I wanted to go last year, but ironically, I planned my trip to Super Nintendo World the exact same weekend, so I couldn't make it. I'll try to go this year, but I'm not sure if there'll be a lottery system, so it's up to Nintendo to determine whether or not I am worthy of visiting. TV Tokyo will start airing a live-action series based around Pokemon on October 19th. It's called Poketoni Boken Otsukumikonde, or Pack an Adventure in Your Pocket. It stars Nanase Nishino as someone who plays Pokemon Red for the first time in 20 years, and her life is forever changed. Makes sense, all our lives were changed by Pokemon, right? We were never the same again. This is the first ever live-action series that is tangentially related to Pokemon, so it might be the first of many. The Pokemon company has been pretty experimental with Pokemon media recently. They also have a ton of web series, Netflix shows, and now this. I think it's a matter of time before we get a traditional live-action Pokemon series for some streaming service. I think that's a tougher nut to crack, though, for TPC. Detective Pikachu did well enough, but we never got a sequel, and the animated Mario film grossed twice as much. Detective Pikachu was such a weird concept for a first live-action movie anyways. That feels like a spinoff after there's already been four live-action Pokemon movies. You don't lead with Detective Pikachu, right? And on that note, let's wrap it up. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. Leave a five-star review as well. It helps with visibility. The podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be on September 24th. See you next time. Matane. Matane.